0: Because what is the illusion of modern technology is that we're running things, right? But if you accept modern technology as your destiny, you're admitting what? That you're, you're not running things. You can't help but see being this way. Welcome to KazoomGram
1: Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to having honest conversations about the most important issues in life and in our culture. We hope you enjoy this episode.
2: Hey, we're back with a brand new episode. Our guest today is Jim Madden. Jim is a professor of philosophy at Benedictine College, author of many books, and Jujutsu Nogi, gold medalist. We talked to Jim about risk asymmetries in modern academia, Heidegger's critique of technology, and how technology shapes humanity's relationship with the world. We talk about aliens, the philosophy of mind, and the importance of having
3: skin in okay,
2: so, so the game. So, you were telling us about the, uh, the Halloween. Um, the last time we talked was right
0: before Halloween,
2: and you guys right. were cheating right. and.
0: I think it was actually on halloween's when we taped it because I, I i was yeah. going home to trick-or-treat yes. my kids yeah yes
2: that's right so tell us about what happened then with that whole
0: yeah so uh so I, I went home and um donned uh you know like a, an evil clown mask and uh stood in my front yard with a 25 pound mace you know that I work out with swinging around scaring every kid in the neighborhood right and so um and we, I, we were just talking off there I, I think uh, I, I actually think Halloween was really was a turning point for a lot of people down here about COVID, right? Like people went out and they trick or treated, you know. And I mean, there's still there's stuff going on still, but I think people kind of reasserted their culture
3: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> at Halloween. Yeah.
2: There's, a, so, uh, there's no longer a fear.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you you can you can find people double masking, right? Okay, uh, but I think I think compared to what you're seeing up there, I think we're seeing nothing like that down here. Yeah.
2: Yeah, the people there. Are, there are a lot of there. Are, I think people Canadians are uh, slowly Canadians are becoming more um, uh, are getting sick and tired of the lockdowns. You know, there are there are friends of mine who are who are like yeah. hardcore COVID lockdown. so We should do it. And then now the we're in the in the third lockdown ish here, and people are like forget this. This is stupid. Yeah. Like yesterday, I was out um, went to a restaurant and people are just like the streets were like packed with people walking up and down, even yeah. at night. I was like, yeah. Mm. And then of course there are some people still wearing a mask. What, yeah. what does not make sense to me? Okay. This is what doesn't make sense to me. Okay. So t- to go inside of a restaurant, you have to put on a mask, right? Yeah. Until you sit down, until you sit down and then you take yeah. off a mask and then you yeah. can talk to the waiter who's wearing a mask. But then when you're standing up, every time you stand up those yesterday, some, some kid stood up to go to the bathroom. like that mask on mask
0: on on. yeah 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 Yeah, we had a thing uh yesterday when i uh when i was at mass where okay so now it's been deemed safe enough that we can sing in mass (laughs) okay but we still have to wear masks so i'd like to see i'd like to see the science that says singing's okay but you got to have a mask i mean i mean (laughs) you know and it was announced that since we know that COVID doesn't really transfer on surfaces, we don't have to spray down the pews after mass anymore. Uh, and well, if we, if we know that, why were we doing this in the first place, right? You know I mean, so it just seems like we, we wanted max discipline on the population. We wanted to maximize discipline for its own sake, right? On the population. And now we're gonna walk it back incrementally because this has been about disciplining the population from the beginning, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. The psychological damage. I think that yeah. that's being done to the kids. Yeah.
0: yeah, totally. Totally. And you know, and I, I mean, I've, I'll, I'll admit, i I mean, I've, it was a few months ago where I just said, look, I'm, if I go in a store and they say, Hey, put your mask on. I said, yeah, it's your property. I'm gonna put it on, but you're going to have to ask me to do it. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I, I remember the first time I walked in the store, uh, you know, people looked at me like I was from Mars I was in like in bigger cities doing this. Yeah. Right. But now I like, get this sense when people. see you're not doing it. They kind of like, Hey, that's, that's kind of cool. It's kind of liberating, right? You know, maybe I don't have to do it, right? And then you'll see someone kind of pull it down, you know? Yeah, if I think um,
3: here, and right. I, I've
0: seen, you know, cases where um, I've not been wearing masks on campus, which I, I'm supposed to be, so here we go. <laughs> but, and and a, I'll walk in a room and a student will see me yeah. and like pull his mask up. I'm like, dude, I'm not even wearing one. And you've been so well-disciplined by this that, that this is your reaction now. Like that's scary, you know? Yeah. That right. Serious. Like, as soon as an authority figure walks in the room, you've got your procedure you're going through now. Like, oh crap, I have to put this on. Properly. Put your mask up, even yeah. if he's not wearing, even if he's defying the order. Yeah.
2: There's, um, I was talking to this 15 year old. That
0: to me is distressing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I was talking to this 15 year old kid this weekend, and he was telling me how in school, mm-hmm. he hasn't spoken to a single soul in school while he's in school because they have to sit. He was like, yeah, we have to sit a meter or two meters apart from each other. And nobody talks to each other at all. He's like, I haven't yeah. spoken to any one in my class since the since, since September. Oh, well, before September, right? Yeah. And yeah. the only people he talks to are the people who come to the gym, right? Uh, who train yeah. with us. That's yeah. when we talk. He's like, yeah. And that's so I've noticed two kids, particularly who show up now yeah and they'll stay until the last i was gonna say i bet they cling
0: to you i bet they cling to you people and good good for you for being there for those youngsters you know good for you yeah but
2: like kids you know like if you're talking about babies or like young younger kids who haven't seen human beings without a mask
0: yeah yeah no i mean and i'll admit i mean maybe this is because i'm like this like pathologically aggressive personality or something right but uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm walking around and I can't see people's facial expressions, I get a little, you know, <laughs> you know I'm a little, I'm a little ready, fight or flight, you know? Uh, I don't know. And, you know, and I think for me too, uh, I, I have a, a sort of maybe intimidating bearing. And I, I think a lot of times I soften that with grinning and I can't do that now. Right. And so I'm, I'm I, I feel more stress around other people when we're all covering our faces. Yeah.
2: And that, yeah. And the whole mass thing and the whole lockdown, I think ties really at well, at least in my, in my thinking too. Uh, I mean, we all, we all read Nassim Talebskin skin in the game yeah, yeah. where the, the people advocating for the lockdowns, So businesses to close down are all the ones who never lose their job, who never got a pay cut, right? They've never, and they can comfortably work from home. Yep. Never have to think twice about, Oh, will yep. I get a paycheck in two weeks or yep. in a month? Right. They can comfortably sit at home and then Preach to the rest of um, the citizens who have to work, who are maybe doing pay, uh, paycheck to paycheck, or our business owners.
0: Yeah, right? yeah, and they have no skin in the game. None, none. You know, and, and definitely let, let's go to all that. But here, here's a. Um, have you heard of a book by Ernst Jünger called the The Worker? I haven't. Amos, no. So so okay. It it's it's one of those really really important books that's in the background of so much, but very few people have read. <laughs> okay. So, Jünger was this um, highly, highly decorated World War One veteran. I mean, like, like literally, the guy was like, like wounded like fifteen times. Okay, and and um, you know, he was the classic you know German uh, Iron Cross wearing uh, officer in World War One who was reading you know Nietzsche's also Sprach, Zarathustra in the trenches and the whole bit. And he comes home and he's part of this you know this disaffected veterans movement. Okay, you can see where this is going. Okay. And um, he had this read. He got into Nietzsche's Will to Power, right? You know, the the the, the kind of pseudo text. I mean, because Nietzsche didn't write the book; it was assembled by other people out of his notes. Mm-hmm. But he got he got in the, this got into Nietzsche's Will to Power, and um, in in the Will to Power, and, and this is definitely my reading of it. The, the version of Nietzsche's Overman there is uh, is actually like a fully technologized human being. Okay, It's a human being that has, is no longer discernibly conscious and has become entirely mechanized in a way that it's an unthinking expression of will to power. It's just an unthinking expression of will to power. And uh, I, I was reading this last fall in the middle you know, of, of all the, the controversy about COVID, and there's a line in Junger's uh, Younger's, um, The Worker where he says, the worker must wear a mask. Already? the worker must wear a mask yeah because it, it it shows the ultimate discipline right you know, the covering of the face and the absorption of the worker as an extension of the machine now uh, as just a, a blind unconscious expression of will power yeah
3: hmm.
0: Did, now, I mean, he, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying the people like who decided on masking orders have been reading you know, are like crypto fascists <laughs> reading younger okay but but uh, I, I, it, was, it was one of the really chilling moments in literature for me yeah. And did he actually mean like a physical mask or like a, you know, just like a distortion of your personality? Yeah, I I think both. And I think he's subtle okay. enough. Right. But he also I mean, he has in mind a war machine. OK, uh, yeah. Younger never joined the Nazi party. He didn't he didn't like them. I, I think mainly because he thought they were men of impeccably bad taste. OK. Um, <laughs> And uh, but he signed up for World War II. He said, yeah, let's get the band back together again. Let's (laughs) let's let's go get some will the power on. OK, he served as an officer in World War II, And I I think he really saw something like the mechanized warfare of the Blitzkrieg, where you have the faceless masked pilot in the bomber Mm -hmm. who's an extension of the machine. The machine's an extension of him. He saw that is the overman. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and, and also I think if you if you understand uh, Heidegger's critique of technology, you have to understand that he had uh, a very tortured relationship with Junger's text, okay? That early early okay. in Heidegger's career, he's sort of enamored, not enamored, but he's sympathetic to what Junger's doing. And then by the end, when he becomes very critical of Nietzsche as the ultimate technological thinker, he's very critical of Junger in that way, yeah.
2: Yeah, actually, let's, let's, let's dive in a bit more on that, on yeah. Heidegger. Um, mm-hmm.
0: I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, and I'm sorry to sidetrack us on this rather no, than put, but hey, the afternoon know. is young, my friends.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, Amos yeah. and I, I know that Amos uh, has been reading Heidegger
1: and we talked briefly about nice. Yeah, I, I started nice. reading Being in Time. Uh, good. good for grow. you, good for but, you, but, uh, Yeah, I'm not very far in it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> no, yeah, <I> mean, <laughs> who a, is, right? Here yeah,
3: there.
0: yeah.
1: Um, there's, a, there's a book, one sec,
2: mm-hmm. you guys keep talking, let me just get, sure. grab the book. sure.
1: Yeah. Which yeah. translation
0: are you reading, Amos?
1: Um, I started reading the um, uh, the more recent one, the okay. 20, 2012 uh, mm-hmm. it's the University in New York, I forget yeah. who, yeah. Uh, yeah. Janet, someone, and I was yeah. finding like, it just wasn't very clear. Mm-hmm. And so then I started again, with the um, the more standard translation. I
0: forget, the it's old like the McCurry, Rob- McCurry yeah. Robinson. Yeah. yeah, McCurry Robinson, yeah. That's the one I use and it's just because it was the one that was issued to me as an undergraduate basically, all
1: right? Yeah, I understand it's the one that has all the the appropriate technical language in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. like the, the newer translation doesn't have things like yeah. I don't think it uses um, like ready at hand versus present at hand. Oh, really? Or, oh, yeah, it, it, it just papers over that distinction and a number of other things. So you mm-hmm. can't really get into the text. Yeah. 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 It's meant to be more readable, but you know, you can't engage any of the secondary literature. Right. Right.
2: There's um, the, the book that I, I went to get is this called the, the Commit Itself. Okay. By Victor Shepherd, yeah. who, who was an old professor of ours.
0: Victor whom? Victor, Victor Shepard. Shepherd, okay. Yeah, Victor Shepherd.
2: So this book is I thought I, I thought uh, um Heidegger was near, but it's it's basically like an overview of existentialism and he's like, oh, okay. Hegel, uh, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Buber, Martin Buber. Okay. Oh, actually, Heidegger's in the end. Sure. Heidegger's in the end. Yeah. So I, I started going through that once I realized, because I used to make fun of this. I mean, uh, it's very stupid of me to be at this point, but I used to think this was like a, such a foolish book. And this was like a friend of ours, Axis. When I was also, your
0: age, I would have said the same thing. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, a friend of ours, Axis, who also has been on this podcast
0: um, and is now a professor
2: of theology. We used to, get into heavy heavy arguments because he was an existentialist and we were mm-hmm. analytic you know philosophers and we don't deal with you know we don't we, we deal with accuracy and language mm-hmm. and logic and, and Axel was out here preaching this real existentialist philosophy. stuff you know like yeah. come on axel but now you know I started going through this again and there are notes in here that I've written yeah. I, I'm reading it like hey, like there's a bunch of notes that I wrote I was like mm-hmm. And I I look at those notes
0: and I think, man, what an idiot I was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I I I've done that where I I've picked up books that I haven't looked at since I was, you know, an undergraduate. And then I, I look at the notes. So I look at down underlying, i like, gosh, that was just terrible. What were you thinking, Jim? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, uh, but I that last summer I read um my uh I read the phenomenology of spirit again. Mm-hmm. and I and I, I, wa- I had read another translation earlier in the year, and then I wanted to read it again in another translation. So I just went to the old Miller one that I had from undergrad. And I tell you, the twenty-year-old Jim really got his he- his Hegel down. I, I like I I don't I found that that guy. At least I was going to highlight the same things this time, right? So, so I was I was pretty ha- okay. I was pretty proud of twenty-year-old Jim. Yeah. And I do stuff too where I'll uh, when I was especially I was in grad school. I would books that I figured I would read again years later. I would write myself notes. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, so I was I was getting ready uh, to teach a, con- a class on Kant a couple of mm-hmm. years ago. And I had my old copy of the Kemp Smith translation of the first critique that I had had as my first year in grad school. And at one point going through, it, I found a note I wrote to myself, you know, saying, you know, Brady's Coffee Shop, Kent, Ohio, 10 o'clock Tuesday, you know, April 5th, whatever it was. And, you know, it's it rained out earlier and I it was eerie. I had just complete almost, you know picture recall of that day mm. that at the time was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. It, it, it was pretty cool. Yeah.
3: Do you
2: think that the older you get, the more existentialist we become?
0: You know, I, I think, I think for me, um, I don't know, I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's the substance of existentialism per se, but mm-hmm. for me, the older I get, the less the kind of commitments to schools of thought uh or philosophical methods or you know you know the particularities like that matter at all to me you know um and so i just the older i get the more i feel liberated from all of that so i i we i started reading a a wider range of stuff uh stuff that i wouldn't have thought i wouldn't have taken very seriously you know you know 20 years ago i was like your age right Mm -hmm. um and 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 also, I do think I think the kinds of questions that you're into kind of change, and it could have maybe I mean it could have to do with like brain your brain too slows down a little bit, right? or maybe speeds up. Right? Uh, I I don't know if I've told this this story before on on, on this show, but uh, when I was in grad school, I had met uh, a, a very prominent analytic philosopher who had just written this very very good book on Davidson. And Rorty and Quine and philosophy of language, philosophy of logic, just really, really sharp stuff. And and he was he was the keynote at a conference that that the school I was at was hosting. And I was talking to him, and you know, and you know, making small talk at the at the dinner party kind of thing. And I asked him, so, what's your next book going to be on? He said it was going to be on aesthetics and European philosophy or something like that.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I remember looking at him like he was like, you know, he betrayed the true faith, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and. And he told me, you know, look, when the the brain I had when in my 20s and 30s that only wanted to talk about logic and think about logic, by the time I got to my 40s, only wants to think about beauty and truth and goodness. Uh, and and he'll think about it through whatever lens is available. And I tell you, it was in my 40s I made that same turn. So I'm kind of always like haunted by that little conversation I had uh, with that scholar when I was in my 20s. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then maybe maybe that's the similarity between um, mathematicians where they say you do, you do your best work where you we, we do your best work when you are the youngest. So the youngest mathematicians are the ones uh, who tend to get all the the Nobel Prize equivalent to maths. Yeah. And it's the yeah. older guys, the older mathematicians, the ones who end up uh, joining sort of uh, more existential, like more physics oriented yeah. maths. And yeah. so I was listening to, man, I forget what the guy's name is. He was on Joe Rogan podcast. He was a physicist. Um, uh, sir, I forget his name. Whatever his name is, but he was just talking—not uh, on Joe Rogan, but he was just in general saying, "Yeah, you know, when I was young, I was super into like high-level math and ma- math, and mm-hmm. then as I got older, I got less interested in that, and I got more interested in trying to understand uh, the universe as a whole, like the, yeah, wh- the holistic yeah, of the universe." Yeah. So that that's always stuck with me.
0: You know, and and think of it. You know, Aristotle didn't want you uh, doing metaphysics to are like 50, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, okay. Why? Well, maybe it's cause you're not really ready to ask the really big questions till then, you know, uh, and, you know, you know, Plato wanted you to do, you know, geometry for what was it 10 or 15 years before you should yeah the 10 Academy. years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you need to discipline the mind, but maybe you need to get over discipline for its own sake or rigor for its own sake mm-hmm. and move into a point where you can ask a different kind of question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And for, and, the um, def this definitely goes into things that we've already talked about which is like mm-hmm. our, our um about university students who are 18 and then you're trying yeah. to get them to get interested into i know Amos and i differ uh, on university and like our, our philosophy of academia yeah. yeah um you know like i think Amos and Amos you can obviously correct me but Amos is more sure. you can you could you could say what your what's your philosophy of university is because Amos and I are you know on, on opposite ends i i don't think the liberal arts
0: works yeah right now yeah <laughs> i mean yeah, yeah yeah well i mean yeah let's do that cuz i i think that we we can circle back to that later cuz but but actually i i think i have a relation of this tighter to too but cuz i for me that was um in reading skin in the game was one of the most indicting parts of it right mm. um and it it uh dovetails with another book that troubled me a great deal that I read last summer. Cracks in the Ivory Cracks Tower. Cracks in the Ivory Tower by uh, Brennan Magnus. Okay, there are a couple of economists okay. at running. Georgetown University. This is mm-hmm. the most scathing uh, critique of higher ed that I've seen.
3: Okay. And,
0: okay. and uh, I find little to disagree with in this book, sadly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, that, this would be interesting. So, you know, I guess... Um, do you mind if I uh, go for it? Yeah. So yeah, go for it. Um, yeah. I was really hit hard by Skinning the Game in that you know my my big takeaway from that book or one of the big takeaways from that book, and and, and thank you for the gift, IJ. IJ sent this to me, so I want you to read this. I'm like, of course I'll read okay. it. Yeah. And uh, you can see his, the game he's playing with us now, Amos. Sir. Um. The 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 my, one of my biggest takeaways there is is the real inequality problem in america and i I suspect you have similar issues in canada but the real inequality problem is not monetary okay it's not social status it's skin in the game it's an inequality of risk right Mm. that uh a lot of people are living almost at no risk (laughs) okay because other people are living at a great deal of risk right and 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 the people at the margins of that Right, are the ones most likely victimized. Okay, and there's a lot of ways you can see this playing out. In in is it Talib? Is my pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Talib. Yeah, yeah. T- T- Talib's book. And but where it hit me is while I was reading, I had a conversation when, with a student of mine. And this this is not an atypical conversation or an atypical uh, case where this young person is is uh, getting a degree. This young person is well into six figures in debt. Okay. Uh, a degree in a field that, you know, uh, is going to maybe earn this person $25,000 a year starting out. Okay. Right. and not going much higher than that. Okay. And, uh, that, that person's pretty screwed for life. Yeah. I mean, like from a financial yeah. standpoint, yeah, when you, when you come out, when you come out, where well, you're going to have to probably retrain yourself, go in debt to retrain yourself to ever knock that debt out. Okay. Yeah. Um, And when you look at what that does for your prospects for marriage and home ownership and all these, all the markers of financial stability, that's bad, bad news. Okay. Yeah. And and we sold that person that degree knowing that that is highly likely. Okay. And I get all the upside from that. I get my very, very easy job that lets me work out twice a day and read a book every day. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And I absorb no downside of the risk. If that degree comes to naught, at least direct effects, I don't get any risk there. The institution is getting risk there. Okay, Mm -hmm. I think that's a great. I think higher ed is a great example, at least the way we run it in America by financing it. uh, Yeah, is a great example where you've got upside down, or at least you know, asymmetrical risk sharing. Right, Mm -hmm. where you have institutions that have no skin in the game, taking people and putting them deep into risk, deep into uncertainty, uh, and profiting from it. Right. Yeah. yeah i felt very personally indicted by that and and, and, and once again I could, I could look out in a classroom probably the majority of the people i'm looking at are in similar situations that's pretty extreme one, but they're in similar situations yeah,
2: yeah that's hmm. so that, that 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 was definitely something um that, that really affected the way i thought about yeah um uh about life as a as a general whole where yeah. I realized a lot of the things that I held to held to and espoused I espoused without taking any of the risk and, and espoused as a way uh, to, to, to show my status as opposed to actually believing and taking it taking ownership of those beliefs.
3: Yeah. And, you know, yeah.
2: and it is, it is, it is that I think university is, is that I think that is, exa- that is precisely why I don't really Agree, or I've come to dislike academia, modern academia, precisely because of Because you have kids who are going in, you know, they're. Let's say I think in America, like your undergrad is like forty thousand or something, right? At least maybe that's more the private ones. In Canada, it's a I
0: mean, forty thousand per year for the whole year. four years.
3: Yeah.
2: Per year. it,
0: it depends, and and you have to understand too something like in I don't know how it is in Canada, but we every institution grossly overprices so they can have big discounts. Oh, like with the scholarship? I mean, yeah, well, so-called. Right? I mean, so a lot of institutions they will have, you know, our price is 30,000. Okay. Yeah, right. But then if you look at like the average student discount, the average scholarship is 50%. Mm, so what's great. the price really? <laughs> okay. It's half that, yeah. but we're going to make you think you're getting a great deal Right. by having like this huge you know, wiggle, it's like the sticker price on a car, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's overpriced by 15%. So you can get 50% off and like you're getting a deal. And mm-hmm. all private schools, I don't know if public schools do it or not. All private schools play with these numbers because they don't want the the sticker price to be too big because that'll scare you off. Mm-hmm. Right. But they want it big enough that they can, you can feel like you're getting a deep, deep discount. Right. But the thing to remember is almost everybody is getting that half off. Right. So-called half off. Oh, right. Right.
2: And, yeah. the, and, and, and for sure. And I, the one thing is you have, I think institutional wise, yeah, you you take all the upsides but none of the risk, right? All the right. risk is given out to the students. That, yeah, who, that's the thing fail, that troubles me. Yeah, yeah, if they fail, it doesn't affect you. you know, yeah. you've gotten the money. Yeah, you've gotten the status of saying, hey, and then you you take you take the person who just graduated and use them as a poster child to tell to get more people to join yeah. to give you more money, but you don't show the graveyard of students. Yeah, you know, and and that's that's very troublesome. And the the one other thing, and I mean, is I think academics who will espouse views without taking any ownership of that, you know, so there's like, there are people who are, you know, skepticists, or people we know who who claim to be skepticists, and, but they're only skepticists in so far as it, it makes it sound cool, right? They're like, oh, we're skeptical, we're skeptical, you know, we're just, we're just a skeptic, we're just a skeptic in life. But then if you really want to take ownership, at least in, you know, in my opinion, I think we had um, uh, Amos, who's that professor, philosophy professor, woman we had on?
1: Um, Jennifer Hartweed.
2: Oh, Jennifer Hartweed, right. She said, you know, if you really want to be a skeptic, right, why why do you eat your food? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that, that was like... Step in
0: front like, of that
2: bus. <laughs> yeah, step in front of that bus, right? And yeah. I think there's a lot more of academics like that. There's one professor, Jim, I don't know if you know this guy in South Africa, I think uh, Amos and I have talked about this guy. He espouses the view that uh, people should kill themselves.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of, Yeah, yeah, right. I've heard this. Right. Yeah. So but yeah, he's still alive. Like, yeah. Maybe he should be the first one to do it. And so this is a, this is a theme that comes up in both um, Skin in the Game and the other text I referenced, Crisis, uh, uh, Cracks in the ivory Tower, is this notion of rent seeking, okay, where. Uh, um, and, and and look and and, and I, I mean I'm I am this is confessional I am a rent seeker I like I pay my bills with rent seeking period okay what rent seeking is seeking is it's a, it's a term you find in economics where you have persons or institutions that have they, they rather than like like sort of winning in the market competition they found a way to get some broader institutional structure to rig the game so that their product is is mandated or demanded. Okay, Uh, and so then they don't really have to compete with anything, right? Because the product is mandated or or demanded. I think that I think I'm getting rent, rent rent seeking, right? When I put it that way, and I think I think in higher ed it goes on at two levels. Okay, so one, you there's there's this sort of first order level within universities where there's there's this constant constant political war going on among departments and faculty on who has the greatest share of the general education program. Okay. Because the more, the more share of the general education program you have, the more job security you have for yourself and other people in your department. Right. And, and I, and I mean, I, and I know a lot of people, good people because they've lost the rent seeking wars in universities are now unemployed philosophers. Okay. You know, where, where there's a renegotiation of what, what the gen requirements will be. And then, um, you know, then then so now it, you know, when they used to have two philosophy courses required and now there's half as many required and tenure doesn't matter now because we have nothing for you to teach. So you're out, okay? I mean, it, it doesn't have to end well, but um, what I worry about with that is, you know, we, we don't really ask ourselves uh, whether or not the students are actually done any good by filling these requirements, okay? And of course, I believe many human beings are done great good by taking just, I'm using my discipline as an example, by taking a course in philosophy. Okay. Mm-hmm. But do I think every single human being is done great good having a course in philosophy? Okay. Uh, especially if you're working in an institution that doesn't, that has open admissions requirements. Okay. So there's no requirement that the, there's no guarantee that people in your classroom are going to, have the the reading skills to say you know read aristotle's physics okay there's no requirement that people in your classroom have the reading skills to read you know even a textbook on this okay um and moreover if you have people who are not interested in the material okay to what degree is there a good actually done for them in right in learning the material okay now, now i think there are students who are done a great good for that by this but i will say in my view my experience it's a minority a pretty steep minority of the students that I encounter are actually done good by doing these courses. Okay, um, And I know that the argument will always be, well, the, the liberal arts, you know, are going to sort of, whatever the discipline is, they're going to like make you a better reader, writer, thinker, communicator and stuff like that.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: The social science on that is really grim. <laughs> it is really, really grim, okay? okay. Uh, if you ever get into the literature on, it's called knowledge transfer in psychology, okay? Where you know if we, if you learn a certain uh, skill by one task, how well you can transfer that skill neutrally to another task, it is not likely. Okay, That's it's not likely.
2: I've never heard um, of this.
0: Yeah, and so okay, there's a famous example. It's in a book. One of my like, this is probably my my top 20 books. Right, it's a book by Andy Clark. It's a cognitive science philosophy mind guy at um, I forget where he's at. He wrote a book called Being There. Um, and he talks about a classic experiment where uh, if you take infant children, okay, and <laughs> I have not done this, okay, but, uh, and you have them, like they're at crawling age of development, yeah. and you have them crawl up to an incline, okay, and I'm sure this was done safely. No, no children were harmed in the production of this podcast. Okay, Okay, uh, if they crawl up to an incline, if it's steeper than 20% grade, the kid will, will either fall off or topple, okay? It won't do well. If it's 20% or shallower, the kid will be fine. He, you know, he, he or she can like carefully crawl down it, okay? And just a couple iterations, the kid will learn this very quickly, okay? And then take that same kid a few months later when he or she can walk, okay? When he or she gets an incline, what's she gonna do? Yeah, if it's it's, it's, as, it's as if she learned nothing about how to, like what is a safe, depth. Does that make sense?
2: That,
0: do yeah. They, do they just fall off? Yeah. Just, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll just go tearing through like like it's flat ground and they have to relearn the process of what they can handle entirely over. Oh,
3: wow. okay.
0: hmm. Now, I might be botching the, the, how the experiment actually works, but the point is is it looks like if we learn something doing a certain kind of task, it doesn't transfer very well to other tasks. Okay. And, and I'll give you, and, and there's all, like, there's a it, they talk about it in cracks in ivory tower. It was a a major American university uh, did a study on their STEM majors, and they took people who all of whom had at least six years equivalent of lab science, in in um, you know in in, in chemistry, physics, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and they gave them a test, and they asked them you know a, a question that required scientific method, but outside of those fields, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. And it was um, just, it was easy. It was just asking uh, to spot the difference between cause correlations sort of thing. Okay. And they, the results were abysmal. They were terrible. Hmm. Okay. And, and, and it looks like what, (laughs) what taking class in chemistry makes you is good at taking class in chemistry. Okay. Uh, You know, I, I, this is like my own little arm, bad armchair social science, but I, you know, I, I just find I, I have fits with my own students, even advanced philosophy majors, just like, look, uh, titles of complete works, you underline those or you put them in italics, right? Uh, titles of book chapters or uh, articles, you you put those, you know, in quotation marks. I know there are different styles, but in general, in English yeah. this is what we do. Okay. I, cannot, I can't get him to do it. And I'll say, if you do it, Dr. Madden's going to flunk you, man. I'm going to do it. I'm crazy. I will flunk you if you do this. And I'll still get bright students who are writing, you know, stuff, but they're still going to make that mistake. And and I've I've talked to people, you know, in our composition, you know, staff here, you know, people in English. Do you teach them this in composition? Yes, we do. You know, and 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 I'll ask students, what did you get in composition? You know, I got an A, but you're still doing it. Why? Because, and I'm I'm not t- I'm not saying the people in co- teaching the English comp classes are doing badly. They're doing a hell of a good job. But what a class in English comp makes you good at is English comp. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily make you good at something else, or at least that's an open question, whether that those skills transfer to something else. Okay, so what I'm getting at is this idea that the liberal education is going to like, even if you don't care about it and you're not really going to like ever give two shits about what Nietzsche says. Okay, uh, that somehow, you know, writing a paper about Nietzsche is going to make you a better business writer there. I think there is very little evidence of that being the case and maybe a lot of evidence against it.
2: Yeah, because uh, the yeah. liberal arts is sold as if you do the liberal arts, uh, you learn critical reasoning, and that's yeah. that's like the thing, right? It's like yeah, you learn critical reasoning. I was talking yeah. to somebody uh, who was looking for like um, um, trying to switch out of academia, and I was like, okay, yeah. you know, like, like what kind of, how can I help you? What kind of experience do you have? Yeah. And they were like, well, uh, you know, I have my PhD, um, and I have critical reasoning skills. I was like, oh well. I, I know exactly what they're gonna say because that's what was sold to me. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'm very thankful for doing philosophy. Having done philosophy, it, it helped me it, reading philosophy got me to love reading. Right. Yeah. Had yeah. I started reading anything else, I would have I would have hated reading. I mean, I yeah. hated reading growing up. So I mean I'm very thankful. But at the same time, it's just how many people are sold, like how many people get get into uh uh, the liberal arts thinking oh yeah if I do this it's going to help me with my critical reasoning and if I know if I have my critical cr- critical reasoning skills then you know it's transferable that's the that's the other thing it's transferable yeah. your 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 studies uh the skills you learn yeah. in liberal arts it's transferable. but it's like well we we are whether we like it or not we are living in a technologically a technocratic society yeah right? to sort of not always the case but if you want to, if you want to um you know if if you're looking to to get into the workforce you do need some sort of a technical skill unless you are a tradesman right Whether, yeah. but liberal arts you know there's no there's no, the co-ops are not a big thing like if you do a philosophy degree because we all did philosophy yep. there's no co-op in philosophy like there's no like if you do philosophy hey why don't you join a, a an an ai start an ai startup or a company and then you can do like work on the back end and do ethics there's no co-op like that there's, there's just like yeah the, But if there was maybe and that's where I think for me with academia, I think there has to be an evolution of some sort. You could keep the classical like super strict, you know, reading great books, going through the history of philosophy, the history of uh, philosophy of science, which I which I find fascinating, you know, as reserved for people who actually show interest. And they consciously when they're older or when they're at work, they're like in my in my free time. This is what I love doing. So I'm just going to take a course from Jim. Pay him, i don't know two thousand dollars for his course to learn i don't know
0: philosophy of mine right that's me for for two grand um, i'd give you some good stuff man (laughs) if anybody's interested find me on facebook (laughs) yeah
1: yeah i i'm just curious though like so far the argument or like the discussion is sort of presupposing that the liberal arts need to give some sort of transferable technical skill Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but like isn't you know wouldn't Aristotle think that the point of doing philosophy isn't like doing philosophy is an end in itself. We right. want to understand right. the world and it enriches our life as rational beings to do so.
0: He, he would he would have been very skeptical of the idea that that everybody could do it. Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah so that's that's my point. And and, and so um let me let me let me do one thing and then we'll come back to it because I I agree and and here's the thing is I have to admit like taking undergraduate philosophy courses was sort of like the turning point experience of my life right okay Mm -hmm. so so let me come so so I think there's rent seeking at two levels there's rent seeking inside the 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 universities where we're all competing to get our courses required okay why because whether we'll say it or not right the incentives are because we want to remain with our good jobs okay but then also, I think, I think higher ed as a whole is sort of rent-seeking because what we've done is we've said, whether or not we actually think having a bachelor's degree is going to make you better for your, better at a particular job, we're going to require this. There's, we've just put like a $100,000 price tag on being middle class. Right? Yeah, and, and the evidence that, that having a bachelor's degree actually makes you better at something beyond having a bachelor's degree is unclear. Okay. Right. Yeah. And there and there's a constant. What they call it's a treatment versus selection bias problem with this. Okay. Have you heard mm-hmm. of this? Um, so if uh, I, I, here's a great is a good example of it. So the if you go to you know the American Philosophical Association, they will proudly tell you that uh, graduates with degrees in philosophy do better on the GRE. Then, yeah. okay, well, that so is that close. treatment or is that selection? Is that just because smarter people tend to major in philosophy mm. or is that because be- majoring in philosophy actually makes you better at taking a standardized test? Do you, you know what I mean? You know, yep. And yep. so the only way you could know that is if you looked at what were the SAT scores of people going in and then what were their GRE scores coming out mm. and yeah. then controlled that against people who didn't major in philosophy and see if they did better. You know, There's actually an improvement. Mm. No one's done that. Okay. And I, I know you can show that. Um, you know, people who have gotten college degrees earn more, you know, have greater degrees of satisfaction in their life, all this stuff. Okay. Uh, it's unclear that they outperform what you would predict just based on their socioeconomic status going in. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and so, so I think what we've done here is you've got rent seeking of the whole system and then rent seeking within the system. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what we're doing is we're taking a bunch of other people who, and putting them at risk for the loans and all, and the time and the, and the lost earning opportunities, and we're throwing ourselves this massive party okay um okay now but let me say this and this is where i'm going to agree with you in this okay uh, all right so so that's that's me indicting myself and in my lifestyle and, and here i sit if you're watching it's yeah. like i'm sitting in my i mean I'm like i'm the, i'm coming off as the biggest son of a bitch ever now because you look here where i sit right hmm. we'll see we'll see what happens when this hits the anyway okay um <laughs> So I'm I'm indicting myself. I'm indicting the institution I work for. I'm, I'm indicting the industry I work in. And all that, okay. Um, but also, mm-hmm. I want Western civilization to continue, <laughs> right? Okay, Western yeah. civilization needs to continue, or 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 for another nation, whatever civilization th- there is, it has to continue. We have to pass something on. We have to remember, right? We have to our remember story. our story, yeah. And so every day when I walk in a classroom at least the words of our story are spoken aloud, right? So the lights have not gone out on Western civilization. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do do you see that? So, I mean, so I I find myself in this very, very ironic situation where um, I know what I'm doing has to continue. It has to continue, right? The liberal arts have to continue. Mm -hmm. However, the way we're distributing it is utterly ineffective and I think cruel to many of the people that we are distributing it to.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. 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 So that, that's one of my reply to like your good question, right? Is I agree with you. This has to continue, but what mm-hmm. we're doing with it, I think is frankly cruel and unjust. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's true, but I, I don't really know like what sort of alternative we could build. Like, yeah, I don't either.
0: Yeah. I don't either. Yeah. I don't either.
1: Right. Is the solution um, to just overhaul, um, you know, K-12 education and try to do it there? Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. You no, know, I mean, I, I I, don't know how it is in Canada, but in, in America, there's a, there's a strange cultural phenomenon where we just, we just associate having a four-year degree with, you know, being a, a solidly middle-class, you know, probably implicitly white person, right? Okay. Yeah. If I may. Okay. It's the same and, here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, And, you know, where it, it the degree, and it's funny, like, like, people don't care, you know, in terms of your, like, ha, like. The, de- the degree is a signal of enlightenment. It doesn't matter if you did it in, you know, medieval literature, or or if you did it in computer programming. Just the degree means you're an enlightened human being. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, And I'll say this, some of like the the most know nothing people I know have PhDs. Okay. (laughs) Right. And, and certainly bachelor's degree. I mean, so I think there's one thing we have to just decouple this idea that in order to be smart and enlightened and well-read, you need a certificate saying this from universities, especially when universities are mostly not making people become smart, enlightened and well-read. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I think we, we have to like, we have to decouple, uh, vocational training from this kind of you know social status as an educated person there's definitely yeah. the conflation
2: yeah. of um a piece of paper or a certificate or a formal education with intelligence yeah you know there's a yeah. sense in which people with a formal degree and i think you know we all have formal degrees jim has obviously jim is a master of formal degrees here <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> more,
0: more than could do me any good <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: that sense of like there are people who who feel a sense of superiority because they have that formal degree and somebody yeah. over somebody who has, uh, who went through the trade school, right? Some, yeah. I know some extremely intelligent people in trades yeah. they don't have a formal degree, but they are, you know, if they were ever to get a formal education, they would be like off the charts. Yeah. They, but they realize, well, there's no real point in me doing this formal degree because I mean, one, they can learn almost all of it on if they know what they're looking for on the internet i mean all the, yep. the, it's all out there you,
0: you, you could watch the uh Cosigram dialogue yeah you could watch, you could watch <laughs> yeah exactly
2: you could watch right, a whole right. uh, our 40 or 47 episodes
0: yeah episodes. yeah i think so no i mean no so i i actually, I actually said this in class today is um I, if somebody like they like just simply committed themselves to listening to the joe rogan podcast once a week and followed up, you know, one of the books that's recommended, the Joe Rogan podcast. Okay, and they did that for four years. I think they would be better read and better educated than the vast majority of the students that I, that that are graduating from my institution with a degree, <laughs> if they actually did that. You know. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, now, in, in, in about the trades, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, my 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 son's a United States Marine. Okay. So. Cool. Yeah. Right. And he is right now finishing one of the most intellectually challenging schools that the marines have okay so they basically do a two-year technical degree in 16 weeks okay hmm. and um you know these guys is,
2: 16 weeks is not a long time you know, it's not, not a long, not long not time. at all yeah
0: okay and they're they're up at 4 30 in the morning and they're PTing, and then they're off to school and they're at in school all damn day and then they are studying all night because there's you know i mean like day one you they drop a you know a Massive manual on your desk and say so your first test is Wednesday. Oorah. <laughs> you know, go to work. Nice. And yeah, I mean, it's it's Marines go to school <laughs> okay. and. Um, and, you know, and when they have an exam, basically, they do the, the every test is basically the three tests, three, the same test three times. Hmm. OK, and you have you know, you have to get 75 percent to pass it. But if you get, say, the same 25 percent wrong on all three versions, you got to recycle. you got to take that part of the course again. Because, you know, a C-level, you know, in this job is 25% dead Marines, okay? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so we can't afford that. I mean, if, if we gave a shit what my students cared about, I would make them do it in that same way. You know, but the thing is, I'm not account- – this, this is a skin of the game thing. I'm not accountable to reality on the other side of this right? Like, my like reality doesn't push back against my product, right? Mm -hmm. What judges me are my other peers, not the reality outside of the university. Okay. Whereas like trade schools are judged by reality. Okay. Yeah. School in the Marines is judged by reality. Okay. And when we actually judge people by reality, not like these internal parties we throw for ourselves, then we actually start to care about standards. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But also a point I'll make is, you know, so you look at the average college student. I I think I think I think college does make people vicious in a way, but not for like the sex, drugs and rock and roll reasons. Everybody thinks it does. You know, so I look at my my uh, my kids are in high school right now. My children are in high school and, you know, they have to be to school by eight o'clock. Right. They're in school all day. Right. Mostly in the classroom that whole time. They have a sport after school. They have jobs. Uh, They're up on their feet on the go all day. They're accountable to things, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Think of most of your college students, you know, right. Schedule your classes till after 10 a.m. So you can sleep in. Right. That's a thing. Um, You know, oh, you know, I'm I'm a little worried. I'll be stressed out this semester. So I'm only going to take 12 credits rather than 15 credits. That's a thing. Right. Yeah. I think all these things. And so uh, I, I see a lot of people taking a step backwards in discipline, taking a step backwards in being an adult. Right. And, you know, now, because um, I don't know how it is a bigger university, but smaller colleges, because retention of students is the name of the game is absolutely yeah. the name of the game. Okay.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the money game. And so we are bending over backwards, do everything we can to make sure students don't stay. flunk out. Okay. they yeah. stay yeah. and keep giving us money, which means we're going to, you know, th- there's this huge pressure to make sure every deadline has an extension. So nobody misses you know, a deadline. There's huge mm-hmm. pressure to make sure nobody fails anything. There's huge pressure to like have a safety net for everything so nobody despairs and quits.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You see so so what's happening? Like people are are showing up at college, I think better disciplined by high school, right, than they are when they come out of college. Right. College is like softening them that way. And when I and you know when I look at like like how worried we are about student stress and student anxiety. And I look at, you know, my son and his, you know, the, the guys that he's in the school with at the Marines, right? And these are not people, for the most part, who are drawn from like the top 20% of their high school class, right? Okay. These are people who supposedly aren't, aren't very academically great, okay? But what are they doing? They're whipping butt, right? In a very, yeah. very technical field. Um, do you, you know what I mean? And and they weren't people you would have expected from high school, you know, who are necessarily going to be like great at like personal organization and all that stuff. But guess what? They're doing it because they're being made to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and we're, and because the measure there is reality, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's what the enemy will do, not right. Just ourselves and whether or not we can keep you giving us money. Right. And I I think that's a huge problem for higher ed.
2: Yeah. People who are good at (laughs) standardized tests, standardized, standardized tests are the ones who are good at standardized tests, right? Yeah, The people who aren't good at it, it doesn't mean they're less intelligent, they're just not good at standardized tests. I, Taleb talks about I don't know if it's in Skin yeah. in the Game, but I know he talks about it somewhere. And you're know, he's talking about people being tested by reality. It's in Skin in the Game, he talks about the Hammurabi code, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, third chapter. And, that, 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 and he talks about how if you're an architect or an engineer and then you build a bridge, he, they have to live under that bridge for a year so that if it, if they do a poor job in breaks, then they're the, they die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which when I read it the first time I thought, holy crap, this is, <laughs> you know, this, this is terrifying, but yeah, know, immediately now that I, if I'm building something, I have to make it so secure that and so stable that I don't die. I, and, and I take all the risk the, on both the upside and the risks, which mm-hmm. should we've talked about how, you know, in academia, that's not the case. That's the case. Yeah. yeah. So Amos, you want to say something?
1: Yeah, I was going to say, like, is what? Yeah, what? What is that exactly? Is the root problem? Is it sort of um, not seeing the university as a social institution that should, you know, contribute in some way to the greater good of society? Is it the commodification of education? Yeah, Uh, like, yeah, what? What do you think is the the root source of all this? Yeah,
0: I I think I think it's commodification. Okay. Okay, th- this is a pretty dark thought. Okay. And, and, I, and I want you, if you think I'm like evil for thinking this, I want you to please Amos, tell me. Okay. Right? Okay. But I was actually thinking, literally thinking this as I was walking up here to to talk to you guys. Um, I think my job primarily, and I think you're because you 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 aspire to be a professor, right? I mean, okay. And, and uh, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm yeah, sort yeah. of
1: changing courses. Yeah.
0: And I'm not telling you not to do that, but I, I, yeah. I just want I really want to be honest with <laughs> honest to the world about this, right? Okay. Um I think my job should be primarily to protect Western civilization from my students and not okay. to promulgate it, okay? I think our—I I think the first job of the, of the professor should be to make sure that Western, so just, or whatever civilization he or she occupies, okay, but mm-hmm. I, I'm a Westerner, okay, is to, to make sure the civilization, which you are there to profess to, is not adulterated, first and foremost, right. okay? And by commodifying education, higher ed particularly, in the liberal arts particularly, what have we done? We flipped that, right? My mm-hmm. job is to make now West, uh, civilization as broadly available as possible, right? <laughs> Even to the point of like di- like distortion and superficiality uh, of it, do, do, do you see that? Okay. Okay. Yeah. And whereas it, but like primarily what it should have been is for me to make sure somebody is getting Western civilization right first, okay, then yeah. we're about adding people to it. Okay, uh, and then making sure anybody I add to it, they're getting it right. Not making sure I can add as many people to it in name at least as I possibly can, right? Uh, and I think is as, as soon as we as soon as we saw liberal arts as something, you know, that that should be available to everybody, whatever whether they're interested in doing it or they're capable of doing it, right? I mm-hmm. mean, there's something perverse when I walk in a classroom and say, shut up and think about the meaning of your life or I'll funk you. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, as soon as we made it available to people, whether they wanted to do it or not, we made them do it. Right. And it, it's supposed to be the, the education of the free person, but to do it under servile conditions is oxymoronic. Right. Mm. OK. And um, as soon as we assume that everybody will just be able to do it. OK. Uh, I think what we've done now is we flipped it we flipped rather than being a guardian of civilization right we've made us salespeople of it right yeah uh and that's the problem and, and by the way i mean how does how does plato define a sophist right what is a sophist right it's somebody who takes money to to sell rhetoric right okay how mm. do how do we oops one second here sorry folks yeah no worries sorry about that uh you know how do how do we how do we sell the liberal arts to our students, right? Uh, you know we'll take your money and we'll give you rhetoric that will make you effective in the business place, right? Yeah, right. And so that to me that's what happened, okay. And and I, I mean sociologically I understand why it happened. All that I think there's good reasons for it, right? Um, but. And I also do think there's a there's a classist there's a racist thing going on in the background there too right you know that you these were signals of your being a certain kind of person right and so we we when yeah. we wanted to broaden the signal what do we do we just watered down the education right you know what I mean not to say that you had to be a white person to do it or something like that but um, and so I think what we've done now is rather than being a guardian of a certain civilization I am now a salesperson of it.
2: That's actually very interesting. Yeah. Ames, what do you think about that?
0: Yeah. Um...
1: Like, I, I do wonder, like, you know, if, if you do follow say like an Aristotle, or Thomas Aquinas and see, um, you know, wisdom is being sort of the height of knowledge and like, you know, knowledge is being a good and part, you know, part of willing the common good is, um, to sort of diffuse that good as widely as possible. Isn't, isn't there a sense where you, like you do want to distribute it. Obviously you need to be committed to the the truth of Western civilization, but, um, you know they, I yeah. think there should be a desire to to sort of promulgate it as well, yeah, as widely and, as
0: possible, right? yeah, so I'd be happy to teach you know the <laughs> the students that slither by that are interested and capable right okay right right um but if i but if I don't limit it to them, then it seems i'm I'm failing as a guardian of it, okay, you know? yeah. And, yeah and think think of like Aquinas will say, you know, you know it's it's in summa conlles where he says, you know, uh, good thing we have faith because most people don't have the time, interest, or ability to do this. He yeah. says it. Yeah. You know, uh, and, 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 we, and you see this in universities, people like talk about this golden age of liberal arts, right? Yeah. When was that, right? Yeah. And yeah. I'll guarantee you, if there was a golden age of liberal arts, it was when it was being done for, you know, a very small proportion of the population. Right? Yeah. Mostly just for clergy and lawyers. Yeah. Clergy and lawyers. Right. You know, uh, sorry about that.
2: Yeah. What do you what, so when you're talking about the uh, being the guardian of Western civilization?
0: I mean, not um, me personally, but the professional.
2: You know, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Well,
0: how do you understand <laughs> if, I, if I'm it? We're <laughs> screwed, right? right? Okay, <laughs> I
2: mean, guardian, you would have to teach every student Brazilian jiu jitsu as well. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm but a purple belt. Right?
2: <laughs> um, how, how
0: do you define
2: Western civilization? And this is a conversation, Amos, and I have had. Oh gosh, it's yeah. Conversation that we've had of yeah. how we define Western civilization. Yeah. Because um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, how do you how do you how would you define Western civilization?
0: Um. Yeah, the conversation that began with Homer. Hmm. Right. Okay. And that and that's still up and running today. So would you? Would so I'll be- put Derrida in that conversation. Do <laughs> you? Know what I mean? Yeah. We've. Yeah. You know, we, we've been thinking about thinking in some sense, I think, since Homer. Right. And we're still doing it now. Right. And, you know, and, 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 and the thing is that that was a very parochial way to put it because, it, you know, it was about text. Right. But there's also there were there's music. Right. There's yeah, there's visual arts. OK, but there was something happened out here. OK. Um, you know, about that time <laughs> and and we've been talking about it, thinking about it, doing it since then. Right. You find but that is yeah. there.
2: Um, so
3: w-
0: could
2: anybody become a, a Westerner in this sense then?
0: Yeah, 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 definitely. Mm-hmm. But, but also I think, I think people in, in, you know, my my equivalent in Japan should be see himself or herself as the guardian of Eastern civilization, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, I think I think that's what education, in many ways, is 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 is, is it's, a, it's essentially a conservative thing, a small c conservative thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's to make sure what we've been given, what we've been inherited, that what what makes a world come to be for us, there's continuity, <laughs> right, with what we pass on from what we got, right? So there has to be mm-hmm. an inherently conservative aspect to it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean. Like to make sure the achievements of the past can contribute to the achievements of the future. Right. Exactly. Hopefully, exactly. it'll be you know cumulative effect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so I don't see. I mean, I. I, I mean, if you ask me to define it beyond the contingent history of it, I would be unable to do that. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, and that's probably where I would differ from a lot of other you know sort of conservative academics. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 I.
1: I think, well, the conversations IJ and I have talked about, anyways, is like uh, what, what actually counts as Western civilization. Um, a lot of people would be willing to write it off. It's just, you know, confined to white Europeans. But, yeah. you know, um, like I guess you can make the point that, like, Islam is, is as much an inheritor of yeah. Greek philosophy and the remnants yeah. of the Roman Empire as. Yeah. Um, you
0: know as christendom was and, and to um, what degree is is greece not an inheritor of egypt okay so you know yeah, yeah and yeah. and babylon as well yeah. they're all yeah. interconnected yeah you know i i've uh, recently been reading a bunch of uh kind of non mainstream archaeology stuff but like Graham Hancock and some of these Wait, guys let's the uh, Yeah, let's go. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying aliens did it, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that. <laughs>
3: that's
0: that's my take on Graham Hancock. So yeah, I didn't say yeah. aliens. you said aliens. I didn't say that, right? Go, blackly, yeah. uh, go, go back Go backly type, type. yeah, yeah. But you know okay, so I this there was just uh, man, this is fascinating the other day Um so apparently there have been three rational apes on this planet right there's there's us there's there's the neanderthals which they were rational they were making cave drawings and they were burying their dead with artifacts and stuff you know and the denisovans Denisovans, okay and you know i was reading in a book by by hancock his most recent one um but the denisovans and apparently you know we have this one cave in 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 uh siberia where, where they they were hanging out quite a bit it was like a workshop and if I remember right, and if I'm quoting it wrong, you know, I apologize. But the apparently they were there 170,000 years ago, and then they go away, and they come back 110,000 years ago, and they go away, and then they were back there 50,000 years ago, and they then they go away. Now, what we call Western civilization, let's just go with my, you know, myopic, you know, um, unreflective dating of that about Homer right? So what is that like 3,500 years ago? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. So think of it. You've got human beings living lives, thinking about shit, making art, (laughs) worshiping Mm -hmm. for 60,000 years between each of those showing up at uh, the Denisovian cave. And then, and then we look at our history in, in 3,500 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I'm just awed by that. I'm just awed by that right? Like we don't, we don't know shit about humanity, let alone the universe, Mm. right? You think of just how many human lives, how many thoughts were thought, how many, how many prayers were said, how many pieces of art were made, how much reflection was done, right? In just one of those 60,000 intervals, 60,000 year intervals from the one stage at that cave to the next. I mean, I I just found, I don't know what inference to draw from that, but just to be awed by it, to be awed by it, right? Hmm. Um, you know, you know, and, and to think wow. that you know, you know, like they're in the, the these who knows what thought those people thought, yeah, but they had figured out, right? And I, you I, sure.
2: yeah, Amos, 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 you get Amos gifted me this book by J.K. Chesterton, I forget what it's called
1: The Everlasting Man, The Everlasting mm-hmm. Man, and J.K. Like the one book by
0: Chesterton, I like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And you know, and he talks
2: about the uh, the caves, he's like, look, we think that the, the cavemen lived in the caves and there were these uh, um, they're backward, they were just drawing, but he was saying. Why couldn't the cave just be a place where they just hung out, drew paintings, and then lived their lives outside? You know. Yeah. Yeah. And I never thought of it until then. Yeah. That, reading that book, I was like, "Oh yeah." I always imagined cavemen as cavemen. Yeah. And civilized.
0: Well, the uh, at least what I'm taking from Hancock is the they don't think the den- the cave in Siberia was was a dwelling. It was a workshop.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. But they were they were making stuff in there. That's what they think. Yeah. Incredible jewelry, right? And uh, one of the pieces they have—it's this bracelet—and from the size of it, you know, it would be too small even for a prehistoric man's wrist, in all likelihood. So it's a woman's bracelet. Um, it's beautiful green polished stone. Okay, and there's a hole drilled in it that was by a stable drill. So these were pretty high tech, you know, yeah. new people. Uh, and it seems that it was passed down quite a bit because the amount of different you know Denisovian DNA that's on it it seems like it would have been like mother to daughter or priestess to priestess mm. one generation to the next at one point it was glued back together okay and that glue job has lasted tens of thousands of years okay I mean imagine that right but also this is what I find fascinating is they it looks like it was smashed with a rock finally okay so, the last wearer of that probably came to some violent end. Someone murdered her. Right. And just think there's a human life. There was a human life that was lived that ended in tragedy, like 60, 70,000 years ago in that mm-hmm. cave. Did you, know, you know what I mean? And, and like, you're just one more of those stories. Yeah. Right? It's crazy. You know, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And I have this just like, when I hear stuff like that, I'm sorry, we're off track here, but what the hell, right. Okay. Um, I have this just incredible sense of solidarity, Right. With you guys, with everybody. When I hear that, you know, and I see like how long the story of rational animals is and how, mm. how often it's gone, and how little we know about it. right? Actually, how something that um,
2: Amos and I talked about in one of the episodes that we did a while back was, you know, how drastic would religions change if we then if we somehow stumbled upon uh, human beings that were not homo sapiens?
0: Yeah. What we did and we killed them, right? Okay,
2: but I mean, like, right now, with what <laughs> yeah. we know, what we do, yeah. the way they really like, I mean, Christianity yeah. is a prime example of Jesus becoming a homo yeah. sapient, right?
0: Okay, so here's okay, here's the thing um, okay, so I'm, I just finished a, a book on philosophy your mind stuff, right? And it's ready to go, okay.
2: Oh, you did, you finished
0: yeah. it, yeah, it's done, yeah. So, yeah. It's, I, I, how fast I, did
2: you write that book?
0: Uh, about a year, yeah, about a year, nice. I freaked out on it. I Freaked out on that book, yeah. Now we see it, it's got. I have a, a a friend proofreading it for me, so there's some stuff to do, but it's it's in place. I should have it. I should have it off to an editor, you know, within by the summer, right? Is it is it okay. uh,
2: is the title uh, mind f? Pardon me.
0: Pardon me. What's the, what's the title of your book mind fuck? No, that would, I like that. Um, yeah, I don't think, but yeah, you know, uh, that that'll that'll be the more popular version. Um, right now, it's thinking about thinking. Uh, uh, a philosophy of mind for the meaning of life All right. okay. uh, but the next book I'm going to do on aliens no you're not I am <laughs> okay. I am yeah no, I am because on. yeah no. no. Yo, yeah, my... I am I totally am yeah Let's, I mean like oh. I, I I got a stack of books from Amazon today on this stuff okay because I can't find a philosopher seriously refl- giving a sustained reflection on this okay mm-hmm. and well, it seems of, to me
2: become interstellar, interstellar species
0: very yeah soon. yeah and, it, yeah. it, it, and the problems in the philosophy of mind that are in this vicinity are, are, are really cool when you think about it, okay? So um, do you mind if I do, I do some of this? Please. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This yeah. Is okay, like- so it's what we're doing. Yeah, we're talking, yeah. Okay. Um, okay, I, I've talked to you about my, 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 pet, my pet chameleon, Bob, with whom I'm enamored, right? Okay, so uh, I can recognize Bob as intelligent, okay? But mainly because like Bob and I have a common evolutionary root. I mean, like, you know, Bob hunts, I hunt, okay, you know, because I've got to eat, Bob eats, right? Bob's got his magnificent crest that he displays for the ladies. I can identify with that, right, you know, like Bob and I have common biological needs that ultimately, you know, there's sort of a limited number of strategies for dealing with these things uh, that I can, I can see analogies because of the common root between what Bob and I do. So, I can look at Bob and say, yeah, there's a sense in which Bob has beliefs. There's a kind of implicit rationality in Bob the chameleon, okay? But then you show me a jellyfish, and I have a harder time seeing that, okay? Because the jellyfish is further off the evolutionary tree from me, okay? But really, is is the jellyfish any less intelligent than Bob? Is the jellyfish any less able to deal with its environment in a way that we can say is implicitly rational? I don't think it is. Do you, do you, you know, so I think there's a perfectly good sense in which the jellyfish is just as smart as Bob, and maybe just as smart as me in a certain sense. He's not reflective. He he doesn't he can't he can't think about his thinking, okay? But yeah. but is the jellyfish an implicit an implicit thinker? I think no less than Bob the Chameleon or a cat. Okay, right. it's just that its it, its needs are further away from mine on the evolutionary tree, so it's harder for me to recognize them. Okay,
3: mm-hmm.
0: well, man, if something showed up here that we have nothing in common with in terms of evolution, okay, could we possibly identify that as a rational being? Right. Hmm.
2: These are Which, conversations that we've.
0: Yeah, like could we possibly yeah, so identify what, what, as what would happen?
2: Like, what do you yeah. think?
0: I don't know. I mean, that's what I want to spend a couple of years thinking about. Okay, <laughs> right? Okay. Or another interesting case. This, this goes back to Clark's book, uh, Being There. It's mm-hmm. a famous example that comes up in a lot of these discussions. Of uh, there's certain kind of, I guess, like uh, wood ticks. Basically, they they, they can sense uh, a certain acid on mammalian skin. Okay. And they're so sensitive to it that they can time their jump to, oh, to hit okay. a mammal, okay, on that. Okay. So they basically structure their world in terms of this acid. Okay. Now that acid is in the room that where you're at right now, right? I mean, uh, you know, you're, 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 your good wife was emitting that acid, right? Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you're not aware of it, but it's there. Those entities are actually there. Okay. Um, but, you, but you can't see them right? Or you, you can't be aware of it. All right. Well, just think of it. Like, so if you have an animal that, you know, we have nothing in common evolutionarily, right? Okay. What are the entities in the environment that we, we're we not, we're not even aware of scientifically that we just because we, we don't have the right kinds of needs that dispose us in the right kinds of way to reality to see what's there. Right. Mm. Hmm. Uh, I think, and, and then you're like, questions like, "What's in this room right now that I'm not aware of?" Yeah. Right? I mean, are the alien's already in here with me, okay? Because, but I just do not have the setup to to get at it, right? In the same way that the skin acid is in the room right now. Yeah. Do you
2: think though, with a, the one? So if you if you take you know if you if you agree with Thomas on um, human beings. The, the, the differential with human beings is the, the rational part, right? Rational animal. Yeah. So if the yeah. aliens were, I mean, you know, um, if they were rational, then can we categorize them as human beings in that same sense or rational animals? Yeah. Um, And that's why I love that movie. Um, And not everybody's a fan of this movie, but Arrival. Yeah. That yeah. Movie. It was yeah. fascinating to me because it's, it's a sense of which, you know, it's, you know, they're talking, they're speaking a language about, you know, they go beyond time, and the languages are in circular, repeating forms. Yeah. Yeah. What What would happen? I mean, even.
0: And see, I I think the movie it makes it too easy. I think it could be even more incomprehensible, right? Mm. Than yeah. all of that. Yeah. Right. So, what what i What are some of the thoughts that you've had
2: or surrounding this? Like
0: it... At this point, it's just. I think the the work I've done in the last book has raised these issues to me. Okay. And now I, I I need to spend some time reading my way into it and thinking out like, okay, what what would solutions, if there are any, to these problems be? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it, it is from what I'm learning, it's almost irresistible to say that there in fact are other probably smart beings out there. Okay, just given just the mathematics of it. Like how many planets, how many stars we think have Earth-sized but but also that but why do we think it's got to be like us at all? Right? Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I I think I think we have to say yeah there there is likely something besides us. Okay, and and then now then there's all these questions like well okay if it showed up could we even know it if it has already showed up would we know it? Okay, um, th- it's those kind of questions I want to ask right and I, and I want to get into kind of the evidential stuff like so I I don't know of anyone who sat down maybe someone has if someone has let me contact me please. Um, Let's talk. Right? Maybe Bob
2: Lazar.
0: Yeah. Who uh, like has looked at, say, you know, what Hume's arguments about miracles, what that like looking at now looking at like alien, like UFO claims in light of those. Okay. Um, I think there's some really interesting issues there. Okay. Because, because you, and, and so I think like some of the religious epistemology stuff, I'd like to look at that now, use some of that stuff to look at UFOs and things like that. Yeah.
2: I mean, there's also the uh, I think one thing that would raise is, you know, if conscious if consciousness or the consciousness that we have is the byproduct of um, I think uh, I'm going off. I uh, john Searle's right. It's just a byproduct of the brain. Yeah. Um, If these if if we come across entities with no brains. Yeah. How do we how
0: we, how do we explain consciousness? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Or, you know, um, yeah, just think, just think of all the really cool problems of philosophy of mind that would come up. Right. Mm -hmm. Something I was thinking about the other day is, so right now, so I want to, I want to talk to Amos and IJ. So what do I do? I don't get a plane ticket and fly to Canada. Right. Because one, you know, the government wouldn't let me right now. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Bastards. But, um, Canadian government might might let you in. Yeah, really? Okay, yeah. I yeah. mean, I think, I think let's let's do it. Let's this summer we should do it. I mean, let's we should do a live in-person show from oh, either Kansas or Canada, right? Yeah. Or like we'll meet like in Montana, right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. I guess it'd probably be better cuz you guys are east, right? So we'll meet in like uh in like Michigan. <laughs> right. Okay. Anyway, so um like I don't jump on a plane and fly to see you. We're going to zoom. Okay. So any any civilization capable of reaching out to us from like another galaxy is going to be way more technologically advanced than we are, right? So why would we think that they would show up here in a spaceship, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if they'd be worried that, you know, we're like these really aggressive apes who might nuke them on their first <laughs> showing up, right? We should probably expect to get something more like a Zoom call from them, right? First and foremost. I mean, whatever the hell that would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I see what right? you mean. That's mean. Yeah.
2: That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, like if, yeah. if, they're, if they're way more advanced... Right. Why, why take the risk of showing up and dying and then not yeah. being able to go back and be like, okay, guys, yeah, these guys are too crazy. They're fighting with each other all the time.
0: Yeah. They've That's got like nukes. You know. <laughs> right. You know,
2: um, um yeah,
3: yeah I'm,
1: I'm just curious like, um, you know, would, would rationality be sort of a common characteristic? It'd, be, it'd probably be difficult to um, sort of discern how that would like manifest itself in yeah. like whatever material body um yeah. an extraterrestrial might have um but yeah would would rationality look the same as sort of um negation movement yeah. from premises to conclusions yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and, acting yeah. on memory and whatnot
0: yeah you know in and especially too because i think so so precious little of what we call rationality really has anything to do with moving from premises to conclusions right right yeah <laughs> but also uh, what generally if if you if you press me and this is is kind of like a lot of what's going to be in the new book um what do I mean by by say a distinctive human rationality is you know I, I mean something like we exist in a space of reasons like we we don't just have sayings and doings right we also explain those sayings and doings in terms of the relationship to other sayings and doings right so we you know we you know I I never would ask Bob the chameleon why are you doing that, and it's not just because Bob can't talk, right? It's because Bob, Bob does not seek to justify what he does. Okay,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, you know. So, but I would ask Amos that, right? I'd expect Amos that if I asked him, you know, and not just not just because he's a speaking animal, though speaking is is necessary to it. But you're a kind of thing that can have a second order reflection on your sayings and doings, right? Hmm. Um, so I, increasingly, I think of it less in terms of conceptuality, although although I think conceptuality is going to have to be in the background of that. Yeah. It's primarily because we're rational in as much as we hold ourselves to justification, right? Or we hold ourselves to demands for justification, right? And an interesting question, you know, would we expect, you know, other, I mean, could, could there be technological beings, right, that... Um, have evolved under some very different conditions that never came up with the game of holding themselves to reasons. That's an interesting question. I don't know. And that's something I want to think about. Yeah.
2: I wonder if you could <clears throat> from a, if you were religious more religious and believed in alien and uh, not aliens, what am I saying? Angels. Yeah. If they were just aliens in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. They probably. Do. But <clears throat> the one thing though, I'd like to get your thoughts more on was and uh was when you mentioned Heidegger in the beginning. Yeah yeah. You yeah. mentioned Heidegger's critique of technology. Mhm. Um can you just go a bit deeper on that cuz I cuz I don't know I don't know I don't know what the critique is.
0: Sure. Oh man, okay. Um, when when Heidegger uh really famously says that The essence of technology is nothing technological. Okay. And I think that I think you really have to have that out on the table to get what he's up to in his critique of technology. Because try as I like, I I just find that people generally, when they hear critique of technology, they think you're talking about like how bad the cell phone is. (laughs) Okay. Right. Or, you know, like how, you know, like how bad the fact that we don't walk around anymore is. And I agree with all that. Okay. All, All right. Um, although, well, we'll get into that. Um, and it's it Heidegger again and again and again says all of his writings. Like I'm not I'm not saying that we shouldn't have devices. I'm not saying we shouldn't make machinery. Okay. Um, and he says very famously, he says, "Look, we didn't make the the factory. The factory didn't make us technological. We made the factory because we were already technological." Okay. So, when Heidegger critiques technology, when he talks about the essence of technology and how it poses this great danger to us, he, he means there's a certain attitude towards being that we have that he calls the essence of technology, okay? It's having a technological attitude towards being. It's not, it's not, and he thinks that's the more primordial thing that leads us down this pathway of, of building certain kinds of devices and defining our lives by it. okay? So it's the first thing to get out. It's like what he's talking about is like, what is, what is it that's the background uh, attitude that is expressed in our obsession with certain devices? D- does that make sense?
3: Mm.
0: Okay. And um, another thing is he again and again refers to the essence of technology is our destiny. Okay, it is our destiny, right? And by that he means there is nothing you can do to not have this attitude, <laughs> okay. He's so he's he's not saying. I I knew people in grad school who're like you know they're they were because they, they were into Heidegger they were like they were doing their dissertation on typewriters rather than word processors because they wanted to be non-technological. I need to point out to them, yeah. but the typewriters a piece of technology, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not like like you could go write a stylus in a piece of clay, and it's still tech. Okay, all right. Yeah. yeah.
3: Um.
0: Anyway, so what, what does Heidegger mean by it? what Heidegger means by the essence of technology is that well first of all we now being shows up to us now it shows itself to us now and no he's saying it, 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 it's not like we made a choice there was no committee meeting where we said hey let's go the route of technology it's it's how like being began to show up for us okay as a standing reserve he calls it all right or, or another place he puts it where as, as the world as, as a giant gas station okay and, and what, what he thinks the technological attitude is, is to see the world as something that is there for us to have access to. Okay. Uh, it's not something, and he, and he always contrasts it with, um, what he calls handiwork or craftsmanship. Okay. So to, to kind of use some hackneyed examples, but if you, if you take, you know, like a, like a, like a, a traditional, maybe like ancient craftsperson. Okay. Um, that person doesn't say, hey, you know, we, we need a cabinet. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the wood and we're going to like burn it down to sawdust and then make it into a pulp and then pour it into a paste and then and then make that into boards and then make cabinet out of that. Okay. We're not going to essentially destroy the wood, break it down into something more fundamental and then like build it into what we want it out of, went out of it. Right. Mm-hmm. The ancient craftsperson says, you know, what is it that, what is in the natural potency of wood to become? Okay. That I can kind of guide out of it, all right. So for Heidegger, in, in sort of ancient crafts, um, require us to sort of meet nature on its own terms, right, and be involved in kind of like a back and forth dialogue with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, one of his famous examples is of uh, if you look at like a like a medieval or you know an early early you know, uh, primitive more primitive windmill. Okay, mm-hmm. you know it only works when the wind blows. Okay. So the farmer or you know the the person you know who's milling grain or what have you, they have they have to work on nature's terms. They can get something from nature, but they have to work on nature's terms in order to get the work in get the work done. Okay. So he's not saying never build anything, but he's noting this contrast between between the 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 classic ancient windmill and then in his example is a hydroelectric dam, right? Because what does the hydroelectric dam do? It it creates a lake where there wasn't one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it wants to extract energy from nature and keep it and use it on our terms. Okay, right? And so he, he says that that in our modern technological attitude, we see the world as that. It's like it's a bunch of energy waiting to be extracted so we can use it on our terms. And he'll contrast that with these other attitudes towards nature that that sees nature as something we can work with, but not there just to be extracted. We have to meet it and have a conversation with it. So is, is the critique the... Uh...
2: That we modern civilizations civilization sees nature as mechanistic, and we're there to manipulate it
0: yeah and and, and, and sees it, it not just man, man, mechanistic. mechanistic and then we can yeah. manipulate it, but we can manipulate it on our terms that we can just take it and destroy it and extract mm-hmm. something else from it right mm-hmm. like i don't I don't want the I don't want the oil I want right the heat that I can get from it, okay, right um whereas the carpenter you know the classical carpenter and i know this is all being romanticized and all that um has to understand wood on its own terms right and has to see uh the wood as having in its own potency the being of say the table and it's going to guide. he's going to guide it to that as Mm -hmm. opposed to saying i'm going to like destroy the wood down to its basic particles right things that aren't it and extract them from it all right and um so that, so the, for one, I said one. Heidegger is saying that is um, that's the contrast he's drawing, okay, between the notion of working with the world in handicraft as opposed to working with the world in sort of modern mechanized production, okay, um, and he and he thinks that in, inevitably that will become self-consumptive, like we will we will eventually apply that to ourselves, okay. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, this in these sort of you know soilent green sort of scenarios. Okay, I mean, no, not literally. Okay, yeah. Um, but also, he's like that. That's not like in in a lot of this. He's writing after Auschwitz and stuff like that. I think I think a lot of that's on his mind. But but he says that that's not the greatest danger. Okay, the greatest danger for him is a kind of oblivion, a forgetfulness, wherein we will forget that there is any other way to look at being but the technological way of looking at being. Interesting. Yeah. I- like the great for him, the greatest danger is that modern technology is, is the stance towards being that hides itself as a stance towards being. It it hides itself, it's a contingent stance towards being. It's a way of looking at being. It's a way being can show up for us that hides the fact that it's just one among many ways being could show up for us. Right. It, it occludes and it hides all the other ways we could look at nature. And think about how hard it is to get anybody to look at nature, but anything but there for our extraction now. OK. Mm-hmm. And so for him, the great danger is this oblivion that we are going to forget what it was like to have anything but a manipulative attitude towards being. And, and being includes us. Right. Like the natural yeah. world and us. OK. Heidegger always says you cannot have an understanding of being without having an understanding of humanity. And you can't have an understanding of humanity without having an understanding of being right so it's that great oblivion to other stances towards the world that we could have that heidegger worries about that comes with the modern technological attitude right and you know this, this is one of the really fascinating things about heidegger's critique though he says you know he quotes he's 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 obsessed with the the german poet herlin okay and he quotes this line where where the poet says um where the greatest danger lies, there also lies the saving hope, or something to that effect. Okay. Where, where, where the, da- the greatest danger lies, there lies the saving hope. And so Heidegger thinks the fundamental kind of uh, attitude of modern technology is this idea that we run the world, right? The world's here for us to extract from, right? It's our doing. We can do it. Like right? we can go get what we want and bring it back. Okay. And he says, well, if you accept that that's your destiny, like you cannot help but see being that way. Okay. Then um, you actually are in a way overcoming that destiny, right? Because what is the illusion of modern technology is that we're running things, right? Mm-hmm. But if you accept modern technology as your destiny, you're admitting what? That you're you're not running things. You can't help but see being this way, right? So it's sort of, the, it's like this really interesting ironic paradox I see in the high, that he's intending there is, by admitting that we are trapped in thinking of the world in modern technological terms is in a way to begin to overcome thinking of the world in modern technological terms because you're admitting it's not up to us how the world shows up to us, mm. which is in a way to start to work with the world again. Okay, And that's why he says where the, the greatest danger is to admit right, that, that technology is our destiny is actually where the saving power is because it's to say we have a destiny that's not our doing. But what does technology tell us? We have no destiny. We can do whatever the hell we want, right? Mm. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's my that's my quick and superficial and unfair. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: Would Would Heidegger think that human beings are,
1: um,
2: that to be a human is to be technolo- technologically oriented? In that, he, yeah. like you know, I'm to give you to give like a. A quick analogy, you know, if you take like early modern man, right, he's always making tools, yeah. and maybe he has a, a early modern man. One guy is very good at making fish hooks, and the other guy is very Definitely. good at at fishing. So I, but I suck at fishing, so i will like, okay, I'll make you a fish hook, and every every ten fish you get, I get one of those. Right? Yeah, and the guy fishes. So is it so to because in my mind. He, to be a human is to be technologically oriented in yeah. just 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 the nature of being a human. And so you know I'm curious
0: to know if is is that out or am I misunderstanding Heidegger? No, I I mean so you know the terminology we'd have to play with a little bit, you know okay. like he, he likes to distinguish between actually between techne, in the Greek sense and technology, okay?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh we're makers we're doers first for Heidegger. Okay. And, and this and this is this I mean so there's there's a you know Heidegger like Wittgenstein has this turn mid career, okay? um has a lot to do with this this relationship to the nazis i think probably okay but um but one of the i think this remains throughout from the heidegger of being in time to the heidegger of the question concerning technology in in the 1940s okay 1950s um amos you you mentioned you're you're reading being in time and and you mentioned Mm -hmm. this distinction between the ready to hand and the present to hand okay and in being in time you know heidegger points out that the way things primarily show up for us is in terms of the is in terms of the sort of readiness to hand okay meaning that we we primarily live in a world of uh, environment an um, umwelt right is is a word right of practical involvement where you know we surround ourselves by tools and and you know i'm going to put in Sarah, quotes pieces of technology okay um, that are available to us that let us sort of structure an environment that we can find our way around. Okay. Um, and he thinks that is sort of the primordial way. That is how human beings show up in the world. Like we, are, we show up in a world of practical involvement. Okay. Um, and it's interesting, you know, that this is very important in the early Heidegger, and I think it's actually important throughout is, you know, this is his example. You've got a hammer in, in your workshop. Okay. And, and you know, the hammer is available to you and it's there when you want it. You don't really have a theory of hammer when it's available to you, right? But then you can't find the hammer, the hammer breaks and suddenly, you know, lo, from whence come hammer, right? You know, like what? what is a hammer? What is the concept of a hammer? But it only happens when something went wrong. Do you see that? And so Heidegger sees the whole notion of theory being higher than practice is, um, it's bad cases Tough cases making bad law, right? That we've defined human rationality, human involvement, human nature in terms of, of explicit abstract thinking that only happens, he thinks, when our worlds break down, not when they're operating. Okay. Did you see that? Mm. Right. So uh in a lot of ways, like he thinks what we've forgotten, right? What we've become oblivious to. Was what it was like to be in a world, to be in a world of practical involvement, to be in a world of, of exchange with nature, right, in the way our ancestors were.
2: That's I, that, okay, so, so that's that that, that 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 tugs my what is that phrase tugs my heartstrings or what yeah. whatever.
0: Yeah, it tugs my jujitsu strings, right? Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 you, yeah. it, right. I mean, you can see right? what do you, yeah. what is that's a world of involvement.
2: Yeah. World, and then what you, we previously talked about, in the to Lab, having skin in the game. Where yeah. one thing that I've, um, that I've been thinking about is, you know, previously I used to think, okay, um, you know, to be a human being is to think only to think abstractly and yeah. to live in the world is all about logic and, and trying to understand language. Yeah. But what I've realized, I mean, what I'm realizing and I'm not saying I'm correct is, you know, there's a sense in which that sort of understanding my previous understanding of what it means to be human was so devoid of the whole human being, yeah, that you 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 lose it. You, you you get to a point where you think, I I mean I'll give you a good example like some of the beliefs that I hold to, I hold I immediately sort of grab grab onto and then I find reasons for it and then when I find reasons for it it reinforces it then I yeah then I believe it then it's sort of this cyclical thing but where did it start though?
0: But where did it start?
2: Yeah. Right. And I mean that so maybe I should. Be this goes back hard. to that
0: that profound conversation I thought you and I had. <laughs> Uh, a couple weeks back yeah mm-hmm. yeah um now, now now keep this in mind though so i mean that that's basically i mean oh my god i'm, I'm being like like irresponsible scholar here okay so <laughs> but what the hell right it's the internet <laughs> um yeah uh you know there, there's a whole second half of being in time though okay and he says, so you know, for the most part we walk around in a world of practical involvement you know i'm not i'm not theorizing like you know I'm not in the line of McDonald's like, you know, Whither come the hamburger, right? You know, I'm just, (laughs) I'm just involved. I'm doing things, you know, or, you know, I'm not, for the most part, I'm not, you know, contemplating the essence of my wife. I'm just digging her and I'm involved in love with her and all that, you know, I'm not having a theory of things. Okay, but Heidegger does say, you know, that can be grossly inauthentic. That can just be conformity. That can be just, you know, going with what you happen to inherit and never having any critical distance from it, never owning it, right? He calls it inauthentic, right? And he thinks at some point, you know, authenticity demands of you to like hold this out over the nothing and to sort of ask yourself, right? You know, to see that this this environment of involvement that you've inherited there are other ways things could have gone right there are other environments of involvement that you could have inherited right and and so he does demand a kind of critical distance from this and for you to hold it up and ask yourself you know can i really buy this thing right and there's dispute whether the heidegger of being in time thinks you can ever answer that rationally or not okay mm-hmm. um And, you know, and I don't really care what the historical Heidegger thought about that, right? But but I think there is something to be said, like, at some point, you've got to, like, put this world of involvement of yours into question. And and I think this is what, you know, like, this both happened, like, we all have to do this on our individual lives. I think it happened in, like, Western history, you know, when, you know, when Plato said, like, why are we doing any of this, right? Um, And and, and then there's this, you know, and, and there's this question, you know, of like how can you return to it after that and all this, but he doesn't rule out that you should have a critical rational stance towards your world of involvement. Right. But he does think everything you do to be meaningful and to be grounded in the world has to be related back to that eventually at some level. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. A lot of his critique is sort of devoted between the confusion of the two. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's going back to earlier, what, what we've been doing is, you know, I, I think for me, you know, as kind of like a mid-career, you know, middle-aged academic, I mean, a lot of what I'm doing in my criticism of higher ed is sort of like say, hey, I've inherited this, I've inherited this this institution that I that I work in, right? Um, and is it is it really good, <laughs> right? Is it really good? I think I think authenticity requires me to ask these questions, right? It requires me to ask these questions, and there's always this question, like, well, what do you do if you come to a, ne- a negative answer there, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you right. think would,
2: uh, what do you think the future of universities would look like, though? You know, with now, I know we had this, con- we had this conversation. Yeah. Um, it must have been, maybe it was like the second time you came on this, was like COVID, right? We had this conversation in university. Yeah. 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 And, and now COVID's happened. I think we're like in the second year. Or, yeah. yeah. It's March. So it's like one year in going to second year. How, how would you see, with all the conversation we've had, it's skin in the game and, you know, institution, uh, universities taking none of the risks and all the students yeah. taking all the risks. Do you think there'll be a dramatic shift that happens in people's view of universities? Or do you think they'll never question that, that they've inherited this whole rent-seeking ideology?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I don't. I mean, yeah, so. What we know about economic incentives would not ex—you would not expect anybody within the university system to be looking to change this because we're pretty well incentivized to keep this going, right? We're doing things; things are pretty comfortable here, right? Okay. Um. And then the question is, like, now because man, because we've reduced this thing to market forces. Welcome to the essence of technology. Okay. Uh, Um. We reduce this thing to market forces, and on the other end, I don't see the consumer really changing on this. Okay because um one at least in in America, the idea of student loan relief is like a really it's a it's a good it's a good way for rent seeking politicians to recruit people right to vote for them which means those rent seeking politicians don't really want to see that go away okay yeah right nor do the banks really want to see that go away okay they want to see it keep they don't want to see massive default but they want to see debt keep happening right okay. And moreover, you know, there's so many, at least in America, because, you know, like the, the the bachelor's degree is so culturally important. I mean, the number of people that I've told that, that you know, uh, I really, you know, I'm not expecting my kids go to college. And I actually, I hope all of them will do something else before they go to college, if they go to college. Right. Get mm-hmm. okay, I me mean, like I'm from Mars. OK. Yeah. <laughs> um, You know, because it's so culturally ingrained that this is just like, like, a, like you talk to you know, middle-class Americans, and maybe it's Canadians too, Mm -hmm. what do you want out of your life? Well, you know, uh, I want, I want to, you know, be a good family person. You know, I want to, I want to raise my kids and, you know, be good husband, good father, good mother, good, you know, good wife. Um, And I want to make sure my kids go to college, right? I mean, that's really high on the list of what just counts for taking care of your children, right? I mean, if you listen to Shows like, you know, the Dave Ramsey show, you know, it's big down here, you know, like a financial advice show. It's always, you know, people like, okay, you know, boxes you got to check include the college fund for the kids, the college fund for the kids. It's never a question. Should the kid go to college at all? Right. Okay. Uh, It's always like, if, you know, like, like, is the kid going to get a degree that's useful in college? You might get that hopefully. Right. Can we do it without financing? Okay, fine. But it's never is there any reason to go in the first place? (laughs) Right. I mean, it just seems that we are not culturally in a position to ask those questions. Right. And it's too close to the, you know, our model of the good life is to get a bachelor's degree. And I think in America, at least in this probably Canada, because you're a nation of immigrants, just like we are. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we all came here off some boat looking up to people. And one of the things you looked up to them for was a degree and a degree was a sign that you had sort of transcended, you know the 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 you know the, the ghettoized uh, immigrant class, right? I mean, at least for my Irish American background, that was it. You know, so um, I'm not I'm not really optimistic that we're going to like really rethink higher ed top to bottom, right? When you look at like all the like the educational priorities in in America, like get as many people in higher ed as possible. Let's get let's make higher ed more broadly available to, to more people, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. What do you think, Amos?
1: Yeah, I I do. Wonder like um, you know if some like voices from different sectors will will like you know would there be religious dissent to this sort of rent seeking? Yeah, um, you know there ought to be. Uh, you might even, you might think of it as a form of usury, which yeah is, yeah, yeah. Know, yeah
0: yeah yeah condemned
1: yeah. as a sin. So yeah.
0: or or indulgences in a lot of ways, right? I mean, so like, um, yeah, I mean, so you okay? You know, I work I work at a religiously conservative school. Okay, mm-hmm. right and you know we like to complain about you know the identity politics that are rampant and you know at public universities right or liberal universities you know where there are certain protected views and you're going to go there and you're just assured no one will disagree with you et cetera et cetera, et cetera right right mm. you know just like here right yeah like, like we're selling identity politics no less than they are right yeah right, right? and and but what, what's what's interesting though is like like there's this patina to it that you know you should be spending this, right, to to like assure like your 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 you you yourself or your child will be on the right path religiously, okay? Yeah, right. Which is sort of it's almost like you know, very expensive indulgences, right? <laughs> like you yeah. need to spend this money to be you know, religiously correct. Yeah.
2: Um, the identity, the identity, it's definitely, it's got that identity politics as a whole has a very religious tone to it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there yeah. are heretics. Yeah. Um, you know, you say something against, uh, you know, within r- yeah. religious groups, they're, they're obviously heretics. Yep. And, but with identity politics, are obviously heretics who, who come out and, you know, say certain things and then they get deplatformed or whatever else. And so there's that sense in which, you know, being religious, or maybe it's not the word "being religious," but having a cohesive narrative to one's worldview is super important to how you function yeah. in the world. Yeah, and there's a lack of. I think. There, I think there's a lack of m- mythology within um, North American society.
0: Yeah, I agree. Right? I agree. Right. Well, you know, and and so, um, and then we don't have a shared mythology, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, so like, on the one hand, I understand like, like, like there has to be a narrative, right? There has to be something that coheres us together. And if we just say our narrative is there is no narrative, then we have a cacophony and no one learns anything. Okay. But I think an interesting thing you have both at, you know, liberal schools, quotes, conservative schools, quotes, what few conservative schools there are, right, mm-hmm. is there's an assurance that if you show up here with a certain commitment, we promise you, you'll still have that commitment on the on the far side right? yeah. Which means there is no risk that you're taking by showing up here intellectually. You have no intellectual, spiritual, moral skin in the game by what's going to happen here. There's no risk whatsoever, hmm. right? It's an absolutely, in the same way that we assure you now that you'll have a bachelor's degree, whatever you do, right? Uh, we will also want to assure you that if you show up here a Catholic, you'll come out a Catholic. If you show up here, you know, uh, trans, another institution, transgender, you'll, you'll, you'll be unmolested in that view, right? No one will, ask you to change that. You see me? And so I think the idea that we are guaranteeing education that will leave you alone from how you showed up, I think is, is there's something very wrong with that? Yeah. We're promising you a certain, a certain spiritual, moral, political, whatever outcome of it that, that, that to me breaks it up. Now it doesn't mean you couldn't have, Hey, our default position here is Catholic or our default position here is Marxist or something without saying, we're assuring you a Marxist outcome or a Catholic outcome or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That to me is the difference between, um, like education and, and indoctrination.
2: Mm. Edu- you mean education being something that challenges you and you, you put, I, I, yeah. you put your beliefs on the line.
0: Yeah. So. At some point you're, you're going to not just be conforming an environment. You're going to hold the whole thing up over the nothing and ask, it, right? <laughs> Yeah. Is this what I do or not? Yeah. And it seems where it's going in higher ed is like we're just breaking off and saying, well, we're going to have certain places where you're assured you won't do that and we'll sort you based on what your incoming commitment is, not, you know, asking you to put that into question. Yeah.
2: And and even in the way we once you leave academia, that still remains, right? You the the sort of yep. challenging like you go into work, workplaces now and they're, you know, they're mandating. I don't know, certain like um uh what do they call them? Workshops, right? Yep. Where you where you're taught you can't challenge these things at all. Yep. And if you do them, then you know you're gonna have um mandatory I forget what they're called, amus in Canada, that you, like, mandatory like, not reprogramming. Uh
1: re education campuses Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Different training things. Yeah. yeah.
0: Training. <laughs> yeah. Um so Yeah, and and I guess I, I want to be sensitive though that I think it happens at least in in higher ed down here. It's happening on both ends of the political spectrum, right? Yeah, right, right. And and we could we could get into who made it happen. I mean, because like if one "quote unquote" side does it to say, yeah, if you come here, you're going to be vilified and essentially put in a camp. Well, of course, you're going to get the opposite. You're going to get the Hegelian opposite of that in mm-hmm. other institutions, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, what do you have any um, hypotheses? Or theories or ideas as to how
0: it started or where it started when it started. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that that that's pure sociology. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I do wonder. Um,
2: I, I you know there 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 is that sense in which um, uh, we had we had this uh, professor Scott Masson first mm-hmm. the first episode, and he was talking about the Frankfurt School, right? Yeah, when he came over. Yeah, yeah, um, and you know his his uh, thesis. Is that you know, they are the ones who brought it over?
0: Is yeah, it I mean, you do you do have Marco Marcus's you know canonical essay. What was it? Liberal intolerance was I forget the title. And we're basically saying there that no, we should not tolerate free speech if indeed it's not ideologically correct, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, but I mean, I think you can also. Yeah, I never know what way to draw the causal arrow from. Do you draw the causal arrow from like the zeitgeist to a philosopher's ideas, or do you draw it from a philosopher's ideas to the zeitgeist? Like, you mm-hmm. know what. What causes what, um, yeah. you know, do you get what I'm asking? Like, like, is, is someone like Marcus just an expression of what's going on in the culture at that time? Or is he a cause of what's going on in the expression mm. of the culture yeah. at that time,
1: right? There's sort of a both end element both to end, it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: but I think just like, you know, the, the, like a sort of new moral structure taking over. Well, yeah. a sort of new moral behavior. Gaining uh, such prominence in a culture can't just be the result of one philosopher or right, one group right. of philosophers. So we greatly like the,
0: overestimate our ability to affect anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, like I, I think that the the marketization and just sort of the commodification of yep. higher ed and of you know all aspects of human life is definitely element yep. of it as well. And, we want and, I, to, and I
0: think you've you've got to embrace, you got to see like how deeply commodified higher ed has become. I mean, I know like I like yeah. think now in higher ed, it's niche marketing, right? So, you take an institution like mine, in the, uh, in the 17 years I've been here, while most small colleges in North America have like shrunk down, they've been in trouble, we've more than doubled in size, okay? Hmm. Okay. Now, a correlation not being cause, I can't say it's my presence. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but um and why is it? Because we have a niche. Like we have this like conservative Catholic niche, right? Mm-hmm. And so like this is what if, any, if the internet saws anything is you don't need like all you need to really get filthy stinking rich is a loyal like one half of one percent of the market, right? Yeah. You don't need the, you know a big chunk. And so in, in and i i know this is in the higher ed literature now is to seek niche markets right for and mm-hmm. but niche marketing is going to be it's going to lend itself to this kind of like myopic ideological definition right um which i i think is going to do great damage especially to religious missions of institutions right mm-hmm. it's what going to commodify you- them yeah okay yeah
1: yeah
2: so there's there this there's this idea of um 1000 true fans yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You only need a thousand true fans to really make a living. like. If a thousand true fan, if you have a thousand true fans who are paying you, if you're just a creator of just a normal, like if you're a philosopher, Jim, let's say, let's say you decide to quit, right, and you have a thousand people, and I, I have,
0: may have, <laughs> <laughs>
2: you know, there's um, and they said, okay, hey, you know, we we we've, we've listened to all of Jim's podcasts on all the all the all the podcasts we've been on. And there's, let's say, 10,000 people listen to it. And then of the 10,000, 1,000 was like, man, I, I really love what Jim's teaching. <laughs>
3: Excuse
2: yeah. me. I'm willing to pay 10 bucks a month. 1,000 people are paying 10 bucks a month. Yeah. You know, you don't really need, if 1,000 people are paying you 10 bucks a month, you're, you're pretty much set, right? You yep. just need those 1,000 yeah, true. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I do wonder if yeah. that, that yeah. is the way you're going to go. There's, um, yeah. there's a guy on Twitter, I forget what his name is, Ed. Yeah. or something. He's like yeah. a Mediterranean guy and he teaches philosophy online and he was saying, he really? yeah, and he was saying, I didn't realize that my niche um, school of philosophy, I forget what he teaches. I think he teaches philosophy of science and philosophy of mind and metaphysics. I think that's what he teaches. I could be wrong. Uh, right after you. saying, I didn't realize that there were people willing to pay to learn from me online and these yeah. were, and his students were not University students, they were yeah. uh like middle aged people yeah. who are working in the office. They just Look to I,
0: I've I've had and like you know, I've been doing a lot of podcasting lately. I've had inquiries. Oh yeah? <laughs> like
3: I've,
0: yeah, I've had inquiries. like, Whoa, that surprised me. Yeah. Of just, you know, ordinary okay, folk. Hey, would you would you teach online? Interesting. Yeah. Maybe you should, Jim. What do you think? Yeah. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> okay. Um because I mean, here's here's the thing. And 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 going back to like I, I don't want to cause Amos great despair as he begins his academic career, right? Though <laughs> though I'm not sure I would do it again. Okay. But yeah, um I have this class right now uh where we're reading we're reading Heidegger's What is Called Thinking, and it's this amazing text. And I and I and the and the young people in that class, if I may, in all humility, they are being done great good by what's going on in that classroom, right? Uh, not because of me, but because of Heidegger, right? Okay. Hmm. And and we read we read Kant's Critique of Judgment, and then we read Heidegger's What is Called Thinking. And that, that has been a very good experience for those young people. And it's been a very good experience for me. So there's great things happening in that classroom. Okay. But when I look out there, I'm like, is it worth $100,000 of debt for those people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about Heidegger. I cannot say that that is the case. Okay. Um, and that makes me think like, but man, I mean, just from, I mean, this is the, this is the, at the end of the day that, this is why I am a capitalist. Okay. Like there's a, there's a better way, a more efficient way, a market-driven way to de- deliver this, right. Mm-hmm. Rather than that at a hundred thousand dollars de- to deliver at a hundred bucks or wh- whatever, whatever the number is. Right. Um, that, you know, that, that it just seems to me that at this point we should be thinking like, how, how can we keep the lights from going out on Western civilization without being, you know, uh, risk offloading rent seeking jerks. Right. Uh, and that, and that for me is my, it's a, it's a question I'm thinking a lot about right now. Yeah. By the way, you guys are partly doing it. You're partly, I mean, not part you're doing, you're doing, you're doing it right. You're doing it. You guys have inspired me this way. Yeah. Mm. No, it's not paying your bills, right? So, no. <laughs> yeah. Yet, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. What do you think, Amos? oh um, yeah yeah go for it
1: oh i i was gonna say let's let's keep going and uh get our get our thousand loyal fans <laughs> yeah,
2: sure. yeah sure. i mean it, it really is true i mean you you think about it like you know the I, i'm thinking about the, the some of the courses that i've taken in universities in grad school and i think man i mean i i don't know if i the, the amount of money i had to pay for those courses. Would I go back and take them? Probably yeah. not, you yeah. know. But the books, like Nassim Taleb, being the cl- like, I know, I don't know how many times I've talked about Nassim Taleb on our podcasts yeah. before, but that man <laughs> single-handedly not changed my mind, but it helped me understand some of the thoughts that I've been having, but yeah.
0: I just couldn't articulate it. Yeah, I think you he's know? brilliant. Yeah, yeah, but he, he's a yeah. real uh, asshole on the internet. Just yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Man, man, like reading the book, I mean, that's no surprise. And frankly, I'd be disappointed if he weren't, right? Because 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 a guy who is willing to put skin in the game is gonna be an asshole. He's gonna mm-hmm. tell you what he thinks because he's willing to take risks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: and you know and, and something uh, <clears throat> something tough that um, with with putting skin in the game is the 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 risk of losing. Friends or colleagues or or people that you know because you you you
0: put your thoughts out there. And yeah, you, yeah. You know, yeah. Just, you know. See, see how widely this thing gets distributed. <laughs> um, is that so?
2: We we got to wrap this up. Yeah, so Amos, Amos has to head out soon. So yeah. fair enough, um, man. It's gonna,
0: what, fair enough. When,
2: when's your book coming out, Jim?
0: I have no idea. So it's I've got um, I've got some editorial interest in it, so I'll send it to send it to them. Okay. and it'll be a year i bet yeah it takes some time yeah okay i think by the time it hits the shelves yeah definitely
1: right you yeah. have you been working on a few over the past year yeah or just okay
0: well it's been i mean uh what i thought were multiple projects morphed into one <laughs> one big one and okay. yeah and so um and, and once I get this off, then it's going to be start thinking about aliens. I guess so. You know, okay. See. I mean, you never know. I mean, like I might, I might get into the alien thing and realize there's no there there. Right about it, just a bunch of good questions, right? But that I, I really, I really want to look at at the alien thing from a philosophy of mind uh, perspective. Yeah. Um,
2: and you know, you've been going on a lot of podcasts. Uh, been doing some podcasts you know, yeah. Over the past, you know, since we, since we, since we first talked to you, um, yep. what is one podcast that you've been on? Mm-hmm. That if somebody wanted to find out more, just in general,
0: yeah, um, what, Jim's That's cool. About. There's some called the, the the Pat Flynn Show that I'm on almost every week now.
2: Okay, are you, are you are you like a co-host now?
0: Well, you know, I, I want to be careful with co-host because I mean Pat does all the work, right? Okay, and um, I just show up and you know and 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 talk shit, right? Uh, but it's it's a he, you know it was interesting. So Pat asked me on because he's uh he was interested in philosophy stuff. And we got on him and, and, and he's also a, a like a personal trainer uh he, he based he mainly makes his living on, on the fitness side right and so he's a he, he it's basically a fitness podcast that he dabbles in philosophy not dabbles does philosophy on it too and um we started talking realized i had been training with kettlebells as long as he was and and so anyway so it, it's an interesting crossover for me because i can talk fitness and i can talk jujitsu and i can talk uh philosophy he doesn't, he doesn't Come on, Pat. Pat, if you're listening no, to this, Flint, you better, you better yeah, do yeah. jujitsu, man. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. So that, so, that, so. what's the podcast called? It's called The Pat Flynn Show, oh, Or see. and people can find it. He's on YouTube under The Pat Flynn Show, and uh, it's also chroniclesofstrength.com, I believe, is his web, web page where he, he has it there, too. So I have a bunch of episodes on there, yeah. Okay. Is yeah. there one particular episode you would? Yeah. Let me think, um, we had one where we talked about Nietzsche that was pretty interesting,
2: okay yeah. okay
0: really yeah, so? uh yeah, last probably last month or so, okay. yeah, so yeah, people can check that out and check that out last, yeah
2: any last parting words of wisdom
0: uh oh man, um you know look i I, I think a takeaway is is to look where you are exploiting risk asymmetries in your life i think if you want to start asking tough self-critical questions start asking about where you are exploiting risk asymmetries and i because i tell you what uh skin in the game brought out i mean just i mean i was already on this track as you know but it really hit me in the face with it like the degree to which i am doing that Mm -hmm. right yeah that's that's a pretty
2: good device amos anything else
1: yeah, no, thanks for coming on. No, it's thank always you great guys. to have you. Yeah.
0: Man, I mean, hey, I, I would be on here every week if you guys like, I love talking to you guys, if you can tell. And and uh I, I really I think I think you're doing great work, so keep it up. Right. Yeah, and thanks. I I, t- I tell my students I, I've had students of mine, like alumni from several years ago, mm-hmm. uh say they were independent listeners of your show and then they saw me on there and they flipped out. Yeah. So okay. You, you guys you guys are Thanks, spreading guys. down here south of the border.
2: That's good. That's good to hear. <laughs>
0: right.
3: yeah.
2: yeah. No, we appreciate it. Uh, we'll talk to you soon, Jim. Thanks for coming on again.
0: You bet. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Kazingram Dialogue. If you enjoyed, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and be sure to follow us on social media.